No, no, we're not drafting everything. So we're, that's your the, 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 consider that draft board your multiple choice question of these are the things that you can select. Swapnel's not playing by the rules. He's got this thing printed out on the side. I know I I tried, made it very clear the rules, but you know I'm not busted chops for doing this. You know he's gonna play. By, you know, what, what was that? Do you ever guys read Calvin and Hobbes? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Calvin would play Calvin Ball. Remember yeah. the rules for Calvin yeah, you Ball? Make them up, yeah. You make, you them, make them up. That's, yeah. that's, what, that's what podcasting with Swap Nose like. Freely filtered. It's been a while since we've recorded. We took a extended summer vacation, but we are back and hopefully we will be recording regularly. That is not a promise, but we are really going to do our best. Freely filtered is a podcast that summarizes and discusses recent NFJC journal clubs, except for tonight. NFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor rather than take the advice of some self-appointed randoms on a podcast. This podcast discusses off-label and unapproved medications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we have Swapnil. Hey, I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm uh, Swap uh, or the agent of chaos. Uh, I'm a nephrologist and an epidemiologist from the University of Ottawa. Sophia. Hi, I'm Sophia Ambruso. Most people call me Sophie. I am from the University of Colorado and the Denver VA, and I'm a clinical nephrologist there and then on faculty at the university. I have no conflicts of interest, and I tweet at, at Sophia underscore kidney. Hi, my name is Nayan Aurora. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Washington. I tweet at Captain Clora and I have no conflicts of interest. Jenny. Jenny Lynn. I'm a visiting scientist and a pathologist at Northwestern University and IT at Jenny J. Wood. Hey, today we have uh, Samira Farouk here and she was uh, wants to talk about her mentoring program. Samira, what do you got? Um, yeah, hey, uh, thanks, uh, Joel, and Freely Filtered for having me on. Um, so I want to chat b- briefly about a program that we started actually about a year ago and, and just finishing the inaugural year. It's called Nefsim Nefrons, um, and briefly, it's a one-year international free virtual uh, program for medical students and residents who are interested in learning a little bit more about nephrology or interested in nephrology and trying to get closer to their fellowships. And the way that we have set this up is a um, there's two core topics or activities that we think of, and one are these uh, groups sessions that are learning opportunities and we cover different basic topics in nephrology like case discussions, urine microscopy, career panels to show really the breadth of nephrology. I mean one inspiration for this program was really speaking to medical students and residents and seeing that the exposure that they really get during the early years unfortunately does not really share with them the full breadth of what nephrology careers can look like whether that's private practice or different types of academic careers or different subspecialties such as critical care, home dialysis, glomerular disease, other specialties that they may not be aware of. And the second unique part of the program is that we we pair groups of trainees with a few faculty mentors that are nephrologists from around the country that have diverse career paths themselves. And the idea is that over the course of the year, they get to know each other a little bit. And so we've just opened up our application season for 2022 that will start in January. Those are due on November 30th. Very brief application, just what is your name? Where are you? And a few words about why you want to do the program. 
And since this will be our second year, we've made some important changes that we're hoping will improve our curriculum and experience for the upcoming year. That sounds awesome. I really do think over and over again, when we're trying to increase interest in nephrology, we've heard that people enter residency kind of already with, if not their mind made up, some specialties eliminated. And oftentimes, nephrology has already been crossed off the list before people already get to residency. And so moving up the funnel earlier, I think, is just the 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 right place to go uh, to get this done. I think this is an excellent idea. So Samira, is this, you know, basically med students through residents? I mean, who are you accepting into the program? Yeah, so pretty broad criteria. And um, what we have on the application are medical students of all years, residents of all years. Um, but as Joel mentioned, I think the earlier trainees particularly may benefit a bit more from this. Um, we have had several third-year residents that went through the program. And so halfway through, they actually began their fellowship in July, which was actually great because they were able to interact with some of the younger trainees and you know share their experiences. And another reason that we felt this program was could be potentially beneficial was that since we know the nephrology applicant numbers are are a bit lower. We know that's getting a little bit better. Um, But for a resident that's interested in nephrology, they may be the one or two only people within the residency program. So this allows them some opportunity to meet like-minded individuals that are kind of in the same stage of their career to maybe kind of share experiences and see what others may be doing. What would be your big lessons from your first year and changes you're going to make for the second year? Because I know doing NEF Madness and doing the NSMC, there was nothing like going through an entire year to give me a million new ideas of how to make it better. And it really did get better because you could you just saw what worked and what didn't work. Yeah. So we have several ideas. I think what was clear where there were a few challenges that we um, ran into. And I think the challenges that we're trying to balance, we know that our trainees are busy, whether they're in medical school or in residency. And so how can we add another activity that they will feel invested enough to come to um, and have that be engaging and relevant to them? And then also we're, we're asking faculty that are very busy as well to volunteer their times. And so um, what we're changes we're trying to make for the upcoming year are to try to maximize the time that our trainees and faculty mentors are going to spend together. And so how we're planning to structure the year is to have a one-on-one mentor-mentee experience. And so each of our mentees is going to be paired with an individual mentor. And the goal will be to meet two to three times throughout the year at the convenience of the mentor and the mentee. And then on top of that, we'll have about six or seven longer uh, sessions throughout the year that will be half kind of group educational sessions, so for example, a case discussion, and then the second half of that session, uh, the trainees will go into smaller groups with two or three faculty members that will be their small group or tubule group for the year. And so over the course of the year, they will meet with that group about six or seven times to try to get to know that group a little bit better. And so those would be the individuals that would be potential, you know, trainee, trainee connections, as well as a bigger kind of mentoring group. And so a change from last year is that we tried to have those smaller group sessions scheduled individually. Um, this year, we're going to kind of pre-schedule those to take the burden of scheduling a little bit away. Just in summary, what, what if you wanted to apply, what do you have to do? What's the application process like? Yeah, so we're really looking for people that are interested in learning more about nephrology, uh, networking, trying to meet some mentors. And so the application, again, is very short. Uh, just name, where are you? What stage of your training are you in? If you are already in a nephrology fellowship or have done one, um, that's not really who we're looking for. And then a very, very brief personal statement, um, one to two paragraphs about why you're interested in the program. And, um, you know, we do have a little bit of a limit because we want to try to have this experience be meaningful. But for those that we cannot accommodate, 
accommodate. We will definitely accommodate for future years. We're not trying to be a highly selective process here. The goal is to get this program and information and experience out there to everybody that wants it. So if you don't mind me asking, how many people did you have your first year? Yeah, so last year we had 112 people in the program. Holy moly. Yeah, and so, so so this year we may go down a little bit, kind of see where that goes. I know from NSMC, kind of similar experience. I uh, took a few different trials to get the right size. So we'll see how many applications come in and um, how many faculty we have that are returning. We're going to invite some uh, new faculty as well, um, and we'll go from there. Oh, yeah. I, I did want to put in a plug because we've got a couple trainees or residents or not med students who have gone through your program. And I've watched them, you know, on the day that they were excited and announcing that they were actually in the NEFSIM program and they were very excited and proud. And then when they finish, and these are all stars anyways, but when they finish, I've been amazed at their breadth of knowledge. They're going to come in to their fellowship probably further ahead than some of their fellow counterparts. So it's pretty phenomenal. I, I just want everyone to know how wonderful I think this program is. And I'm excited to see how it's going to impact the medical students as well. Samira, this year for our fellowship program, we had more applicants than we've had in the last five years. And I just think we have to, you know, the correlation with your program starting is very tight. So I think you should take full credit for that. Uh, thanks so much. Um, I'm hoping we can keep going in, in the uh, right direction. And I think, like you said, I think earlier is better. Um, I think, you know, if we can make this program in the future, maybe we need a separate one just for medical students, but we'll see. But I think, you know, getting them earlier before they have already fall in love with some subspecialty and are not willing to consider others, I think that's the key because, again, I think just in medical school, all they're really seeing is is the tubule and all the fancy things that happen there, which is very important, which we love. Um, but I think when they're thinking about careers, some of the other subspecialties may just make more sense to them or um, be more intuitive. And I think our specialty and the subspecialties that it can lend to may not be. And um, from my experience, and I'm sure with yours as well, when we do share with trainees what is out there, it's always kind of eye-opening as to, wow, I didn't know that I could do nephrology fellowship and then also do all these other things that I, I may be interested in. Outstanding. Hey, thanks for coming in. We'll be sure to get this out in the next week or so. Uh, thanks so much. And anyone can feel free to send me a message if you have any questions. I'm on Twitter at SSFS and Frank, A-R-O-U-K. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mira. Excellent. We are in the shadow of Kidney Week. So this was the second year that it was a fully remote Kidney Week. I thought it was a pretty successful Kidney Week. And we're going to re redo what we did for the Kdigo hypertension guidelines. And we're going to do a draft. And we're going to go round robin. And each person is going to draft a different either theme or session or a specific poster or abstract that they saw. And then we'll talk about it for five minutes and we're going to go around. And this is going to give you a sense of what we thought were the big moments of Kidney Week 2022. So uh, we discussed this at, before we started and we discussed it that uh, Sophia was going to draft first. I'm looking at the surprise on her face because, no, we did not discuss it, and she had no idea I was going to pull that, but that's the way it works on Freely Filtered. <laughs> Sophia, are you ready to draft? I am ready to draft, and although now I'm in debate, and I see that our draft list has changed order because I feel like there's some things that we should focus on, but I think probably one of the lectures or was from our plenary sessions that had one of the most profound effects on me. And what I probably remember the most, because I do forget most of what I've seen 
during ASN. It wouldn't be Kidney Week if you remembered it all. <laughs> but was the talk by David Williams, the social inequities in health and how we can effectively reduce them. This gentleman, he's from Harvard. He's a professor of public health. He's a chair of Department of Social and Behavior Science. And really what he did was he outlined so beautifully the gap between, I would, I would say, black and white individuals. It got a little bit more um, in depth than that. And what he opened up with was basically that black individuals with a college degree have a lower life expectancy than whites with only a high school degree. And I thought that that was, you know, we all know this, but it was just really impressive the way he outlined it. And then he went on to discuss basically how this is true systemic racism. And I do want to just quote something he said. Uh, because I thought it was impactful, at least for me. I feel like I know systemic racism exists, but the way he put it really had an entirely different effect on me, and it made it far more palatable or far more tangible than it ever was before. Basically, he's talking about these are inequities by design, and they reflect a carefully crafted system functioning as planned, successfully implementing social policies, many of which are rooted in racism. And basically, he's talking about the systemic racism at the level of the community, at the level of neighborhoods, and how they have so dramatically impacted those communities. And that just was something I think illustrated it so much better than I've probably ever heard before. I, I'm with you. I thought this was an incredible lecture. I think you you stole my pick here. But he said that... Nice draft choice. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm going to get you back on this in round two. For every $1 white Americans make, black Americans make 59 cents. And that was from 2018. And the worst part is that that hasn't changed since 1978. And he said that was when the gap closed the most. Hasn't changed in 40 years. It's astounding. Excellent. Excellent draft pick. Okay. The second draft pick is going to go to Swap. Swap, what's your dra- What's your first round draft pick? The number two pick off the board. So I'm going to talk about the late-breaking clinical trial poster session. I don't know and like always, you know, you were the only person that looked at those. Exactly. Un- exactly right. No, they, and the reason, the this- reason, this is this is something. I hope the ASN is listening. Someone at the ASN is listening because this happened last year as well. Oh, I think I think freely filtered is mandatory among all members of ASN. Is that not true? <laughs> Did I miss that? <laughs> because I mean, the platform is great. You know, it is. It is, and especially eh, with all the confusion. It's okay. Yeah, yeah, you've seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the AHA right now, and it's definitely better than the AHA, which is saying something, okay. right? Uh, but but the posters for all these conferences, they are hidden away. Right? It's like they don't want you to go there. You have to actually seek and go to those posters. And then they are, you know, you have to search for them. They are not organized in any nice way where you can click. So every time I went, I had to kind of, you know, do these five steps to reach them. And there are 26 of them, right? So I, I took like a few hours to go through them individually. Um, anyway, uh, so they are the late break. And, and importantly, Swapnil tweeted, he did a little uh, tutorial on each one of them. Is that right? Yeah, so I, I tweeted I read each of work. them, uh, and then I made a Twitter moment, uh, which you can see in the show notes. But the so there are twenty six, and these are the late breaking, right? So you want these to be like science, which is going to change practice, uh, but not high enough that it went to the oral, right? Not a New England paper, but you know something close, so it could not make it to the late breaking oral, which was on Friday uh, morning. So you know I was expecting, I went with high hopes, and in fact I was tweeting, why did they have only one oral session? Maybe some of these posters could have been, you know, another oral session. 
Uh, but when I looked at them, it was a good decision because, you know, you look at some of them and you think, did they deserve to even be here? So if I could, if I could uh, classify, if I get more than one round. Uh, no, no, you're going to get multiple rounds, but I need to pull, you need to pull one right now. Unless you want to call, unless you want your draft pick to be the poor treatment of posters and that, uh, that could be a draft call. That is a draft call, but but I'm not done. Come on, let me. But that's uh, not what your draft pick is. Yeah, yeah. So among these posters, so you could group Calvin them into, Ball. Yeah. So there are there are. <laughs> Nobody's gonna know what that means. Calvin Ball. Yeah, well, uh, oh, I mean, it's all recorded. Sound. We'll we'll put it in there. We'll put it in there. Uh, so so there are uh, there were some which were were not that bad. You know, they could I can understand. And there were some which were sort of you know there are these trials which have already been published and they do like a subgroup or a secondary analysis, and, you know, they hype it again. We had that in the oral as well, actually. Um, and then there are a lot of phase two trials, which are very promising, and actually they are pretty good. Uh, and then there are the bizarre ones, right? So so there is one with zero patients. Like, what is the lowest sample size you can think of? This one has zero. I would zero. not think that that would even count as a sample size. Yeah, so there was one with no results. Uh, this was a, a flow trial where they talked about, oh, pan- the pandemic happened, but we could keep the trial going on. That was the poster without any results, without any table one, without anything. There's another one where okay. a trial is going wait, wait, on. Swap, swap. I'm going to ask you to pick a trial to, to talk about. Are you going to, are you going to pick one? No, no. Yeah, I can, I can pick one. I can pick one. There is a, so there is, you know, cardio renal syndrome, right? Uh, I've heard so of it. Is, yes. Exactly. So the, wait the a heart, second. What, wait, what is can that? You, can you define that? <laughs> <laughs> Which type? The five types. Uh, so yeah, so the classic one, right? So the type one where you, you think of, you know, someone with heart failure, Really bad, acute heart failure, acute uh, decompensated heart failure and kidney failure, volume overload. So you try to diurese them uh, and you think about, when you look at these patients, you are like, you know, I wish I could squeeze out the fluid. Uh, And some people may think, hey, can I suck out the fluid? So guess where you could suck it out from? The bladder. The ureters? Yeah. So so they, they, they had a device which went in through the bladder, went up the ureters and went into the renal pelvis and it was like a vacuum over there. Sucking fluid into the from the renal pelvis, and and it sucked a little bit. And worse. and did and, it work? Uh, well, what was and, their measurement? What three, was their outcome? N of three. N of three. No controls. I think it'd be hard to recruit for that study. <laughs> it sounds ugly. And uh, and and their endpoint was just increased diuresis or short or just they with, in, with three. Who cares? Who cares? Increase, increase and who cares? It's an N of three. Exactly. And, who cares? Okay. It's an N of it's three. It's a proof of. Con- it's a proof. It's, it's a proof a of proof concept. Proof of concept. Okay. You know, they but they don't have metalazone or or a flozin or a spironolactone, right? It's just being on loop diuretic. Is that, that is diuretic? Okay. <laughs> so I hope That's... people are. I hope people are listening to this and and understand that before this started, we said we'd keep it short and tight. We're thirty minutes in, and we have six minutes of recording. Uh, don't worry, we're good. We're good. This is all going to work out. This is all going to work out. Okay. And in fact, the third. So excellent draft swap. Very well done. The <laughs> it was a long way to get to the suction on the ureters, but I love it. I love it because there's that's the creativity that we have in nephrology today. Nine, can you give me your net, your draft choice? I can. So um, I think most people know this, but when you do ASN, you can pick a track and you can say, I want to know about diabetes or podocytes or whatever. And then you get a suggested itinerary for talks that you should go to. So I did the uh, chloride pathway. There was a chloride wow. pathway? <laughs> so, so the point is, I can't believe it's the Can we also just, that's, that's as a draft, news. be a no chloride pathway? Yes, yeah, so well, I was going to nominate the entire basic science track, but 
<laughs> okay, so I just want to make clarification. There is no chloride track that ASN assigned, but nine, you went and created your own chloride track? Right, so I created Okay. Right. So I, I get it now. It's very funny, no, well, but I you sucked me in for a moment. I was like, holy moly. You would have gone back and done the on-demand chloride track. Um, so, okay. So the point is there's no chloride track. And so I never made it out of the plenary session. Uh, and so I'm going to go with the Selena Gomez uh, uh, cameo. So if people don't know this, Selena Gomez had a kidney transplant because of lupus nephritis. Sounds like she had complications, had a second procedure. I think the point is getting a A-list celebrity to come into to Kidney Week provides a lot more awareness for issues, particularly a celebrity like Selena Gomez, who has more than four times as many Twitter followers as the president. And so I think, uh, and it was short, it was a couple minutes. A little lackluster like too, but I don't think she's like that in person, is she? Don't tell her that. <laughs> okay, well, then delete that from here. That's an outstanding draft choice. Um, and I don't. I think I think it's unlikely that uh, Selena listens to this podcast. So I think we're cool there. <laughs> okay, the fourth draft pick in the first round goes to Jenny Lynn. What do you got, Jenny? Okay. Well, originally I was going to, you know, talk a little bit about Irish McCartney's talk on AI, just because he did give it. He was the only person. I mean, granted, I haven't listened to every talk, but it was the only talk referencing Squid Game. So I thought he got a lot of bonus points for that. But um, I might be a little bit biased, but I had the pleasure of moderating the April 1 session. And I actually thought it was really great because it was translational and it spanned pediatrics and adult medicine and basic science. So I felt like it was really like all these different research communities convening together to try to... I get updates and see, hear a different perspective on this uh, molecule and gene that we all have been fascinated with for the past decade. And so it opened with um, pediatric nephrology in terms of uh, talking about the link between preeclampsia outcomes and APOL1 high-risk genotype. Then we went into epidemiology. Wait, can, can, you just, can you just quickly, what, what is the link between APOL1 and preeclampsia? Uh, is it an easy one? Yeah, I believe it was you, a worse? fetal genotype that uh, could drive it's, preeclampsia. No way. It's the fetal genotype that drives the preeclampsia. That's awesome. That, yeah, I, it's I bananas. will double check that on my tweet. No, no. Line, but yeah. It is. Yeah. I was the one that added this one on there. I'm like super psyched about this. I'm so obsessed with the April. So do. So they have to have two. They have to have two risk alleles. Mm -hmm. If the fetus has two risk alleles, does that increase the risk of preeclampsia or increase the severity if you get preeclampsia? Oh, yeah. It increases the risk of it. So it's an association. They think it's abnormal placental implantation that's related to the fetal's ApoL1 two high risk alleles. It's bananas. It's awesome. That's sweet. They propose an endothelial biology pathway that they thought was driving it. You know, really interesting stuff, but something we don't think about a lot on the adult side or, you know, if we're not encountering claims a lot. But interestingly, it, you know, the first mouse paper for April 1, they claimed there wasn't really a phenotype for FSGS, but preeclampsia was a phenotype in the mice for the G2 uh, genotype. Then uh, we also covered epidemiology, and there was a little bit of a reference to you know, not confusing, you know, ABLE-1 and basically saying people should not attribute 
uh, April one is the main driver of disease of kidney disease in patients who self-identify as black, and so meaning that you do need to still look at systemic racism and uh, socioeconomic disparities as potential drivers. But it was a nice review of all the different epidemiological uh, studies done on April one, and then in terms of the second half was more on the basic science side, where uh, David Friedman, it was basically his C. Jason review paper with Martin Pollack, but in talk form, and explaining uh, how the amino acid sequences that were, have been used traditionally in April 1 basic science studies were not correct because there's a different haplotype for the G0 genotype, basically. Um, and we basically had gotten it wrong because we were not genotyping actual patients with the full sequence. So uh, there were a lot of, he hypothesized as well that you know, all the different hypotheses different groups claim are driving April 1 could all be true, but it's difficult to know without the correct model system. And then he presented this mouse model that uh, he and the Pollock group have been using and recently published. And the final was Carl Skorecki at basically presenting therapeutic translation, what's going on in terms of what pharmaceuticals are looking at in terms of knocking down APOL1 or even targeting uh, downstream pathways. So it was overall very interesting talk, multidisciplinary, which I think is rare for some of these sessions. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. I'm, I was super excited about it. And you looked great when you got to moderate it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> That's the least surprising thing of all. <laughs> I, I am going to close out the first round of the Kidney Week draft. The, very, the first, and this is going to be an annual, the first annual Kidney Week uh, freely filtered draft. And I am going to choose the testing study. And this is interesting because uh, you sh- you, Swampnell earlier was just knocking down studies that were just reposting additional results. And this seemed like this was going to be, because we saw testing way back in 2017, and this was a JAMA paper, and it was it was steroids for IgA nephropathy. And they had 523 cases of biopsy-proven IgA, and they randomized patients to methylprednisolone 0.6 to 0.8 mg per kg versus placebo. And the top line results, and the thing that we talked all about in FJC was there was a lot of adverse events. And the number needed to harm for serious adverse events was only five. And for infectious serious adverse events, the number needed to harm was 10. And so we all said, we're done with steroids for IgA nephropathy. And I had no idea, but the people running testing said they didn't stop the trial. They rejiggered it. And they continued it with a lower dose of steroids, and they dropped the dose down. And I think, and I want to say it was 0.4 mg per kg. So it was about a, a either a 25% or 50% reduction in the dose of steroids. And one of the things that got lost when we talked, when we thought about, oh, remember, remember testing in 2017, is that there was a really, there was a, there was a big reduction in outcomes. Like the steroids were working if you just looked at the outcomes. It was just the adverse events that swamped it. And so there was a number needed to treat of 20 for a 40% drop in GFR and ESKD or death was a, a number needed to treat of 21. So like this was this was something that would look, would look promising. And so when they went to the lower dose, the, it worked. So they had 4.2 years of follow-up and their composite outcome was 
40% decrease in GFR, kidney failure, or death. So this is essentially our classic doubling the serum creatinine, dialysis, or death. And they had a hazard ratio of 0.53 for steroids. This has a huge effect size. You need steroids, but not a lot is, I think, the answer. Well, and you, and you need PJP prophylaxis. Exactly. They, they added the Thank you. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. So lower dose steroids with PJP. Trim sulfa. Yes, the, uh, but how do you square that with uh, stop IgA, which was negative, right? We discussed that, I don't know, five, six years ago. That was the German trial, which was completely negative. Different uh, population, like, right? I mean, exactly. It was completely, completely negative. Like there was no hint of a benefit. And that was also proteinuric. That was also, you know, optimal RAS blockade background. So similar in many respects. But those were German patients and these were, you know, maybe more... Uh, and that's the thing with IgA, right? Yeah, IgA is so heterogeneous. Some people don't progress and some people progress. So uh, there was a lot of discussion afterwards. Yeah, so whenever it comes out, it'll be a nice FGC discussion. That's right. So so th- this is this is going to be a high-impact paper when it finally gets published. But, the, but this was a kind of you know, scratch-the-record moment in that high-impact clinical trial session on Friday that, that uh, Swapnil was talking about. It was more aggressive disease, though, and I, I don't know if they s- selected for that or it just behaves differently in, in China than it does other places. And so Exactly. So, they, I mean, they had uh, uh, the proteinuria was a little bit higher, like 0.4 gram higher than in Stop IgA. Stop IgA had 0.75. They had one gram for entry, and, you know, the actual patients were like 2 point something. Uh, but I don't know if that is enough, right? They, they, you're right. The number of events were pretty high. So uh, it, it seemed like a more aggressive phenotype for whatever reason. Maybe there's some underlying genetic other reasons why IgA. And I, I think there is data showing that IgA is worse in, you know, East Asia or, or you know, Southeast yeah, Asia. Yeah, se- it was 75% Chinese, 12% South Asian, 7% other Asian, and 5% Caucasian European. But I, I mean, I feel like this is the population that you talk to nephrologists, especially those who are like specialists in GNs. I don't feel like I really am per se, but they say anecdotally, there is a, partic- a particular population that I will treat with steroids. And I, you know, I don't care about stop IGA. I don't care about the other data. I will treat them. And it sounds like, well, you know, I, I, this is, you know, more specifically or, or centered around the Asian population. There is that population that nephrologists will absolutely treat, you know, and it's more based on their anecdotal experience than anything else. That's, that sounds like this population. It, it is funny, though. It does feel like we're going backwards with IgA to, to go back to steroids, especially I don't know if people were watching the late breaking clinical trials, but the very next trial was the Vacapan trial. So we okay, went- whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, the, don't be pulling a second draft pick on mine. If you want to... <laughs> I don't want this pick. He's not. This is like I keep pointing out. This is not Calvin Ball. Okay, we're going to move on. Okay, okay. So we're going to start the second round. Wait, it was a very successful. Before you move on, Joel, do you just want to mention the number needed to treat for this group? Because I do think it's nice to contrast between the high dose steroid and the low dose steroid. Um, because I I have it here if you want me to quote it. But yeah, I think please. It's, I wish that everything was communicated in number needed to treat. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> look at his swaps like this is BS. And I would love to be educated on that, not being a a statistician or an epidemiologist. I got it right. But so for the full dose, number needed to treat was uh, for benefit was 8.5 versus harm was 8.1. So that's full dose. For reduced dose, which was the 0.4 mg per keg, uh, the number needed to treat benefit was 6 versus harm, which was 41. 
you know, I actually had a very complicated patient that I've been dealing with. And this was the the thing that sort of pushed me over the edge to say, okay, I'm going to do it. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because I have a, I have a patient that I'm struggling with, with IgA and I kind of ruled out steroids before. And after, and I, all I could do was think about this one individual as I was seeing this, I was like, Hmm, I might, I might go, I might give it a try. Okay. We are done with the first round. Very successful draft. You guys mostly get the concept now. It really is impressive. We're not going to do a snake draft. We're not going to now reverse it. We're going to go this, the exact same order. So as we arranged before we started, Sophia, you are in the top position. You, would you like to do your second round pick? Yes. Although I'm feeling the anxiety quite a bit more this time around. It's a lot of pressure. It really is. How many rounds are we doing? Until we get bored. Okay. What do you think? Three? <laughs> three sounds right? Short and tight. It'll, it'll just impact picks, right? So I just want yeah, to- Yeah. If it's three rounds, that'll be 15 choices. That's a lot. We might bore everybody at that point. Well, how about this? Let's do the second round and we'll, we'll see how we- We'll take the temperature of the room. Okay. Meaning this room right here. <laughs> meaning the Zoom room. The Zoom We're room. not going to poll Twitter. The Zoom room. We need to make it till eight when my kids go to bed, so I don't have to do it. So okay, we'll keep that in mind. That's the main. <laughs> That's consideration a long time. Here. That's an hour and fifteen minutes for you. Oh, we're not going that long. Stop that. Okay, <laughs> Sophia, what's your what, what's your second round pick? I almost want to lump them together, so it's it's kind of a combination: the upping the game, optimizing medication management and CKD, combined with the who, what, when, where for newer drugs for DKD, the joint ASN. ADA session. Okay, well, what's the deal with these? The upping the game, I mean, basically, they are both addressing our new... The first one was Catherine Tuttle, and she's talking about SGLT2. The next one was talking about our HIF stabilizers, which that one, to me, is a little bit more vanilla. You know, we're talking about... We don't quite know what to do with them yet. There seems like there's a signal for benefit, but we don't know what all is happening. And we've got some other stuff happening in the late breaking trials that somebody can talk about, but it's still like non-inferior. And then they discussed some bicarb. And if, if my colleague were here, she'd be all about it. She's like, bicarb is the best, but she's not. And then finally, they finished off with the MRIs and finerenone. And basically, I think the first one for me, and I think probably most applicable to people listening, is what to be doing with our SGLT2 inhibitors. And you know, it talked about the benefit of them and the studies and the trials and how across the spectrum, they are beneficial. They're, they're beneficial. And you know, reduced ejection fraction, preserved ejection fraction, CKD, non-CKD, diabetics, non-diabetics, albuminuric, non-albuminuric. And then it also discussed recommendations on how to treat patients who are sick, who are diabetics, worrying about some of the um, adverse effects and and providing some guidelines for that. So I think that was a really, really helpful session for her. The other stuff uh, in that one, I'm not as excited about our uh, I just don't have as much to say. You know, everybody's excited about the MRAs. We don't know what to do with them yet. You know, I don't think, I think it's exciting. What, what do I you mean? mean they, what, I mean, uh, Sophia, let me push back on that. What do you mean we don't know what to do with them? Like, don't, don't they have a broad indication for everybody with uh, CKD stage three, or actually, was it GFR yes. greater than 20, who has diabetic kidney disease? Let me get more specific. Our non-steroidal mineral corticoid receptor antagonists. So, those are the ones that have a lot of signal for benefit, right? But we still don't have a head-to-head with spironolactone. We're going to have a huge cost difference. You know, I'm working at the VA. I imagine that they're going to make me go through spironolactone and plirinone first and make them fail it and get boobs and, <laughs> you know, fail a plirinone 
before I can get to finerenone. You know, at least at the VA, let's put these non-steroidal steroidal MRAs aside and we think about like our SGLT2s, we can get them there. I mean, the rest of the nation is still having barriers with SGLT2s and they are literally the most, they have the most evidence and the most benefit. So I'm at the VA and we're thinking about trying to institute these outside. The insurance is going to be these massive barriers until we have more data and a reduced cost. It's going to be, a, it's going to be an impossibility. Yet they're still putting it in that pyramid. We should be doing SGLT2s. GLT2s, GLP1s, and finerenone. So anyways, this is me wanting to do it. I just feel like we've got a lot of barriers for all of these medicines, and that's going to be our greatest one. And that's really interesting because in Sue Quaggan's uh, presidential address, she actually spent you know, a good chunk of time talking about clinical implementation and how we really do need to bring all of this into practice because we can talk until we're blue in the face about how great these drugs are, but until patients can access them, it's a problem. I, I actually thought, so... so- Matt Luther gave the the um, yeah. lecture on, and I thought he killed it. I thought it was great. And he convinced me at how good these drugs are. Maybe somebody will pick, you know, Fidelio and, and how they, you know, did Fidelity. But I thought it was pretty impressive outcomes. We're never going to see this spironolactone versus finerenone trial. Yeah. And I must get... Well, I mean, don't, don't we also at least just need to see spironolactone versus placebo showing the same kind of benefit that right, we got right, but with it's, finerenone? It's, it, we don't even have that. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a question of a lack of uh, there's absence of evidence of benefit rather than evidence of absence of benefit, right? And no, these no, are all, I, I get it. Yeah, I get and it. there's no money, right? Who's got the money to do the trial? And yeah, but we have we have we trial. have Rails and we have Ephesus where both of those drugs got the heart failure trial. Like, a, like and and Topcat, there was right? no so money. Top, there was no yeah, money in those drugs then. Exactly. So Topcat would have shown it unless it, it was for Russia that screwed up Topcat. Anyway. But that was, uh, but, but Topcat wasn't for renal outcomes. Well, that was, was for, for HFPF. Yeah, yeah. For HFPF, yeah. Exactly. Heart the, failure preserved ejection fraction. The, the uh, spironolactone has a lot of proteinuria and blood pressure data, but they're all small trials, right? We don't have the uh, hard outcome trial. But the, the thing about implementation is that uh, I was talking to Christos and he says that finerenone seems to be doing a better job than the flows in people for some reason. Uh, with uh, you know, with getting the approval and and whatever it is that you require to do in the U.S., I don't even have finerenone in, in in Canada yet. Yeah, I, I've heard that same argument. So, a quick uh, disclosure here: I was on a panel, what was it called, advisory board for finerenone, and this this topic exactly came up, and they, and they were bragging about how much better their access was. And I just wrote my first prescription for it, and it was a disaster in terms of trying to get it. Like the, it was one of those things where the pharmacy was like, it's not even in our database. What do we do with this? Right? It was like. We, we finally got the patient the medication, but it, it was by no means easy. In my practice, and I don't have a well-to-do practice, I have a very blue-collar practice, um, a lot of people on government assistance, and I'm not having any trouble getting them one of the flozins. I sometimes have to try two or three, right? It's not always, you know, embagliflozin or dipagliflozin, which the ones I tend to reach for, but there's one of them that is going to be covered, and that is my experience. And I and to me, I'm not having trouble getting people covered except for non-diabetics. It's a little more difficult. With right, right. But you are you are a very motivated nephrologist, right? Imagine I am all the I other, wear the pin. Exactly. I wear the pin. So so going back to Jenny's point about the implementation, and I'm wearing the t-shirt. I think I said something on Twitter is that if we stop, if NIH decides to stop funding all trials, all studies, every single thing for the next 10 years and just focus on implementation of flozins, I think that will do way more for you know, kidney failure or maybe fendrenone, whatever you want to add, right? Just implement and get this done, right? We don't want to wait 20 years before everyone who is 
on a frozen is still on a frozen like what on that session uh, sophia is talking about Catherine Tuttle pointed about you know ACE inhibitors. Not everyone who should be on an ACE inhibitor is on an ACE. Even now, yeah. after what thirty years, so we don't want to have the same situation with Flozins. Okay, we need we need to move on. Excellent pick, Sophia. That's a really topical call, and it really does touch on a lot of things. Uh, the second pick on the second round goes to Swapnil. So uh, I'll go to the other extreme. I'll pick a poster which I thought came very close to being an oral, and maybe it should have been. It's on this uh, entity, you know, that uh, Joel and I have uh, fought about from the other end of things. Like in six years ago, I thought it did not exist, and Joel thought contrast was really bad; it was killing kidneys. And now we are at the opposite end. Now Joel goes around saying it's a myth, and I say, wait, 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 wait! It's not a myth; it still exists. So this is, uh, I think, Joel will agree that in a small minority of patients who get, you know, cardiac cath, who get, you know, a lot of contrast, we can get some kidney injuries. So this was a trial done from uh, Calgary. Uh, it was a step wedge cluster RCT. So they took cardiologists and they randomized them month by month. The first month, a couple of them were randomized. The next month. And for that month, the rest of the them were controls. Were we giving the contrast to the cardiologists? Uh, I wish, uh, but no. They, <laughs> the, the cardiologists were randomized to a educational intervention. So there were three parts of the intervention where they got you know focused feedback about hey, this is what you should be doing. This is what is contrast nephropathy. Don't just basically don't give too much dye. And these are the high risk patients. And then they had this EHR based computer decision support system, which would pop up saying hey, this patient. Has a AKI risk more than five percent based on you know the uh, NCDR risk score, and the third step was there was an audit and feedback saying, hey, last week you did you know ten scan, ten cath, and in four of them you gave more contrast than you should have, or you did not give the IV hydration. The they were doing the LV EDP Poseidon like protocol. So they had thirty one cardiologists, and guess what? They had seven thousand patients. You know, so comparing to the Three patients in my previous pick. Uh, this one had seven thousand patients and seven thousand procedures, seven thousand eighty-seven procedures in six thousand five hundred patients. And what happened is that the the amount of contrast used went down, the amount of hydration that was used went up with the intervention, and the amount of AKI went down. So yes, it was contrast associated AKI, the soft outcome, uh, but that also went down. So it was a positive trial in seven thousand patients, and Kidney Week thinks it's a poster. Yeah, that's that. Yeah, that. Can you make things? But that is interesting. That it was just a poster. Yeah. No comments. Yeah. No one's excited about contrast nephropathy anymore. But I no think this is this is yeah this is this is the subgroup which is sort of this is the group where we should not lose sight that these are the patients you know who have underlying CKD. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Did they do any attempt to measure the harm? that they got from educating these people about the risk of contrast nephropathy. But, but did they these do patients, any att- No, 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 I'm no, serious. No, no, these, did these they patients do- still got the cath. It's not that they no, did no, no, not you don't the cath. Know, no, you don't know about the patients who didn't get the cath. You don't know that after the education, whether the cardiologist said, you know what, this patient's too high risk, I'm not going to do the cath on them. But that may have happened. To some other patients. I'm serious. Yeah, no, but right? look at ischemia CKD. What does it do? You know, our patients getting them cath, does it do anything? I'm not trying to be nihilistic. Ischemia CKD was a very specific population where there was no benefit from cath. Absolutely. There was not a lot of harm from cath either, except for the stroke. <laughs> <laughs> and, don't tell, and don't tell me that it was contrast-associated stroke. I don't think that exists. And, and the, but nobody ever measures the harm that may come from when somebody has a good indication to go to cath lab and they, they have an elevated creatinine. And th- th- I think this does happen. 
I think the evidence that has looked at it shows that it does happen. And so an educational intervention that is only looking at volume of contrast and a soft outcome like contrast-associated AKI is, eh. I think cats are tough too, because how do you, I mean, there's confounding atheroembolic disease, right? You're going in. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's the whole contrast, you know, is it radial or femoral uh, and all that. But that's, that's the reason this whole field is so messy. Uh, we're going to go down. We're going to go down a rabbit hole that I don't want to go exactly, down to right exactly, now. Exactly, exactly. But this and, is an RCT, so so they're looking at you know contrast and you know anyway uh, intervention and control, same things. And you can't ignore that it's seventy thousand patients. Um, seven thousand. Seven thousand. Seven. Oh, seventy. I was like far more impressed with seventy thousand, but I'll take seven thousand. <laughs> seven thousand is a lot. No, that, but that's a. In terms of contrast studies, that's huge. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, you know, outside it's, of preserve. It's larger than preserve. Preserve was 5,000. Larger than preserve. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, excellent draft pick and, and, a, and a nice chance to dump on me at the same time. I like that. <laughs> excellent. Okay. The third pick is, uh, it's nine. So I'm going to. Right? Third yep. pick, second round. I'm going to change my pick here because of Sophie's pick and the discussion about implementation of drugs, particularly for diabetic kidney disease. So I'm going to do biomarkers of diabetic kidney disease and how to use them. And specifically, I wanted to mention, so Steve Coca gave a talk, and I had never heard of this before. I'm curious if you guys did something called Kidney Intel X. It's his company, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, he's, I think he's part of this company. And what they're doing is they're taking clinical patients, clinical data plus circulating markers to identify people at high risk of uh, rapid progression of kidney disease. So they're taking circulating plasma TNF receptor 1 and 2 plus KIM-1. And then they're putting people into groups of low risk, medium risk, and high risk. Because something I struggle with clinically is now we have all the, right, diabetic kidney disease is essentially the, the HEF-REF now of nephrology, where we have now a number of pillars of treatment. You have your Wait, wait, slow, slow down. Uh, diabetic kidney disease is the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction of nephrology. Isn't it? I mean, you got... No, no, I, I, well, complete that thought because I never heard it expressed that way and I think it's it's teasing my brain, but walk me through right, so, the, th- the the plan. So, so half-ref or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, we have, you know, goal-directed medical therapy now where there's established multi-pillared treatment, right? You have your RAS inhibitors, you have your SGLT2 inhibitors, you have your beta blockers, etc. So diabetic kidney disease after the 20-year gap between IDNT and Renal, we now have a number of therapies that have come on in the last few years. And I think it's going to be similar where we have your ACEs and ARBs, you have your SGLT2 inhibitors, you have your MRAs and your GLP-1 agonists. And the question is going to be, how do you use these? How do you implement them? Which patients are going to benefit the most? And I know I don't know that yet, right? Do you give them to everybody? Your patient comes in GFR of 50 and albuminuria of a gram and you, you, you start them on everything. What do you do? And so, so what he talked about, and obviously we need to see more data, is taking these variables, including the circulating factors, putting them into a formula and assigning patients a risk score. And then based on that risk score you may reach for more aggressive therapy up front versus stepwise therapy and, and wait to see what happens. So I thought that was pretty cool if it pans out. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I get a lot of soft CKD referrals, right? The creatinine of 1.3, their GFR is 55. They get, they get a little, you know, the, the family practitioner sees a little flag and they just send them to nephrology because they were confused by the kidneys in medical school. And I'm happy and I'm happy to see them. But I, you know, I put, I put them in the Tangri risk formula and it's like, 0.1%. And I just, I just don't know 
what to do with those pain. Like how, how aggressive should I be, right? Like, you know, I'll get their blood pressure under control. And if they don't have proteinuria, I'll think about an SGLT2 inhibitor, I think, you know, but they have no, you know, if they don't have any heart disease, they don't have any other factors. It, I think I think a risk factor would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, and with AI, uh, uh, Sophia, you just by you know, no, you always have great things to say. I'll just try and pepper something <laughs> on top. <laughs> hey, sometimes it's got great things to say. Sometimes there's a lot of BS there. Uh, so, so with AI, uh, I have mixed feelings because you know half the time AI is just logistic regression, and they call it AI, right? It's, it's hype. Uh, but at this same, uh, uh, on the other hand. Um, and I, I, again, I'm extending uh, with analogies a little bit here. Uh, people think about, hey, AI is going to replace doctors and all that, right? And we know that's not going to happen. Uh, but if you take the analogy with uh, chess, for example, remember in chess, Deep Blue defeated Gary Kasparov some years ago. And since then, computers have been, you know, chess is like it's a dan, right? Where AI can can easily defeat humans. Uh, but this, the, the so interest has gone away from that area. But what I was reading a few months ago was that there are all these hybrid competitions where uh, it's a player and an AI or, a, or an engine, a chess engine, playing against another player, a human with an engine. And the person who wins or the pair that wins in these kind of competitions is not the place where you have the most powerful chess engine or the most smart human. It's something about the interface is that, you know, there are these some people who can work with the machine and understand the output that the machine is giving who seem to come out the best. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is that uh, I think we should, you know, try to understand and use the information that we are getting from these uh, AI-like things uh, to make us better doctors rather than, you know, they are going to, AI is going to replace doctors. I don't know if that was smart enough. I do want to bring it back and circle around to this goal-directed therapy that, you know, is so well delineated for our cardiology patients. And now I would argue to say that actually our diabetic kidney disease is, as a whole, is equivalent to our, you know, heart failure. And I would say diabetic kidney disease, and we've got new data that's demonstrating that, you know, 50%, and the data is a little messy, um, but 50% of the patients who have no albuminuria and no rise in their creatinine actually have glomerular basement membrane thickening and mesangial expansion. So we do know that there is a degree of diabetic kidney disease that's not being captured based on our traditional standards of how we're screening for it, you know, it almost remind, makes me think of our left ventricular hypertrophy. I mean, we don't know what to do with that. Like these patients who have diabetes, we know they've got to have histologic changes and things are probably happening at the microscopic level. So where do we initiate our goal-directed therapy, number one? And so maybe these biomarkers will be helpful. And then a whole other issue is how are we going to implement? We probably, as you know, we're saying, oh, we need to be doing this, we need to be doing this, we need to be doing this, but we haven't delineated how we're going to be doing it. And we haven't created this entire algorithm. I mean, cardiology has an algorithm for how they're going to institute all of their different medications that they have. And oftentimes they throw them all at once. But I do think that's something that we need to start thinking towards and whether or not it's happening at the individual level as as a nephrologist, or if we need to start thinking about it more globally and how we're going to be implementing this. Diabetic kidney disease without proteinuria is our half pef. Yes. Nice. Exactly. Nice. Okay. Jenny, pen ultimate draft pick of the first of the second round of the kidney week first annual freely filtered draft. Can this be the last draft pick? <laughs> Just given how long this is going. <laughs> what do you got? What do you got, Jenny? I am gonna put up because I just think they're really cool. The organoid session. 
is because oh that I, was the one I was gonna get next. <laughs> she also got a plenary. She, did she didn't she win the Homer yes, Smith Award? Yes. <laughs> Melissa Little, yes. The whole session goes from different aspects of how you can use organoids, engineering them. So for her, as she was presenting how they were doing bioprinting to create like these sheets where you can seed stem cells. And before with regular organoid protocols, you could get like a hundred nephrons maybe in like a little well. But uh, with this, she was able to get up to 10,000 nephrons per sheet. And a mouse kidney has 15,000. So we're not near the million, but it's still better. And it's, it's just impressive how rapidly the technology and methodology is evolving. And now there was an investigator from Japan who was presenting on kind of working towards actually connecting it to ureters and things like that. And then it ended it with a kind of a pharmacology industry uh, translation of testing drugs on the organoids, including organoids implanted into rats, uh, just in case you needed the human genome for what you're testing. And also it's very interesting, and you know, that is like on the cutting edge for us in terms of translation uh, on, you know, on the preclinical side as we're thinking about more, dare I say it, precision medicine approaches to therapies. So, so with these 10,000 nephrons, how, how much, what kind of GFR you're looking at? Did they talk about that at all? No, is more- this is, I think this is modeling cell injury at this point. Uh, the Japanese, uh, I'm blanking on his name, he, in terms of him getting actual flow. Like, I think that's what they're working towards to actually making it a little bit more physiologic. Okay. And not, and, and not to be obtuse, but what's the advantage of having 10,000 rather than having a hundred? I think you still need, you still need that technology to be ready for when you have so, all the so other... So it, 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 the, the goal ultimately is some kind of artificial kidney. Yes. Uh, and this is a step along that route. Yeah, and even some, better and modeling. A, like, if you can have... Or like, even better modeling. Yeah, like, if you can just bypass the mouse to bad mouse and have a human kidney in a, <laughs> have a human kidney in a dish yeah, that you can yeah, test exactly and then if you can have blood flow and urine flow if they can get to that point where they're engineering that then hey this is the next frontier outstanding okay I'm going to close out the second round, and my draft pick is going to be the Good Vibes and Growth Mindset Community Chat. So this was a new item to the agenda for Kidney Week, and this was trying to solve the problem of when you have a virtual meeting, how do you allow networking and those hallway conversations and so they did a couple things. So it was a kind of like an open Zoom chat that you would come in and they could uh, bring people up to talk and you could raise your hand and ask questions and you could talk. And so that was part of it. Another part of it is they were not recorded, which I think was an interesting decision. It kind of disappointed me because there was a few that ran during other sessions that I did not want to miss and I wanted to see Simu live. And so I couldn't go to them. I know Matt Sparks hosted a social media networking type of thing that I didn't get to go to. But this one was uh, Melanie Honig and um, and uh, Leticia Rowland and uh, Suzanne Norby and Ivan Porter who were running this. And it was a lot like how a lot of it was how do you do a good job attending on rounds how do you how do you run a good service as an as a nephrology attending and there was a lot of interesting tidbits uh things that I learned here's the one tidbit that I love cuz it's incredibly cynical and so it was perfect for me was that when you're going to be teaching on rounds stop and tell people 
I'm going to be teaching right now so that they remember that you did some teaching. So when they go to fill out their their feedback form, they will remember, oh, Dr. Toff did some teaching every day. So I, t- I told my my rounding team that I learned that. And now every time I teach, I'm like, I'm going to go teaching now. And they, they find that hilarious. So I know it's a bit cynical, but I think it, but it does kind of make sense. It's like sometimes we just talk. And we kind of feel like we're teaching, but the residents might – or the people around me with you just like, oh, he's just kind of filling time. And they don't – because you're not at a whiteboard, they don't put it in that bucket. And I think it, you know, it's important to say, hey, th- we're going we're gonna to slow down here. We're going to step out of kind of just rounds and just talk about patients. And let's just talk about this concept more generally. So, But, but the whole idea of these community chats, I thought they were very cool. And this one, this one was a particularly good one. Uh, I, def- I definitely enjoyed that. Yeah, I was there for that. I also enjoyed it. I can tell you, though, I do have a 100% distaste for virtual meetings for a number of reasons, and because that it doesn't replace it. I can no, also tell it you doesn't. That it was an attempt to, and I think it was better than not having it. I agree with that. So, and you know what? I will take a virtual conference over nothing. You know, but like I don't have the ability to like sit and watch. And like not do anything else. I'm also recovering from an injury and it like hurts me to sit more than it does to stand. And then I have kids that are bugging me. I'm like, dang it. This I would rather be totally out. My kids and my husband are at home and I am out mingling with my friends that I've met that I've not met because not in person at least. Um, so I'm Sophia, sorry. Sophia, do you want to choose this as your, as your third draft <laughs> choice? Third round draft choice. You could choose virtual meetings totally suck. It is on the draft board. Yes, it totally sucks. <laughs> okay, totally we have sucks. our first draft of the third round. <laughs> I don't know if I have to go into further depth with that. I don't know if anybody agrees, but I it is not my venue for learning. It probably is for others, but I do best and I retain more when I'm in person. I tried, you know, I even have notes. I have like screenshots. I did not active tweet because I'm not good at that yet or live tweet, that's what it's called. Yeah, I'd rather be with other people. I tried different venues. I tried standing. I tried sitting. And then like after about two hours, I needed more of a break than I would get. And and then I'm like, first day was like, oh man, I'm not going to get to every day. Second day, my anxiety was the fact that I'm not doing as much as everybody else. Third day, I'd finally settled into it. And the fourth day, I was too tired. I couldn't, I mean, at least it didn't last that long. I'm with you. Kids suck for a variety of reasons. Um, We don't need to go into that but saturday man i got i did i did nothing i mean you know if, if daddy's home then there's you know you're you're not i'm there's no sitting around watching a conference i was totally tripped up by the everything's on pacific standard time oh yeah i found that to be like i woke up on thursday and i had to sit around and do nothing for 3 hours waiting for the plenary session i could not believe and, and you could not log in right and then when it yeah. finally and then when it finally came <laughs> There was a technical problem and I couldn't log in, which just drove me bananas. Yeah. So, so I, again, I uh, logged in early, but I, you know, instead of not doing anything, I logged in at eight and left it on. I think that's why I was able to get in. What, good call. Good call. <laughs> I, I, in hindsight. Um, yeah. The, the light reading actually is easier with the virtual, right? Because oh uh, my gosh, so much you don't have to virtual. take pictures. You can just take a screenshot. screenshot. And two, I have two screens and it was, uh, it was way easier. But yeah, I completely agree. The, the being in San Diego away from your family it's it's all you know you're focused and and you don't have anything else to do you just to defend pacific time you guys realize monday night football is at like 5:30 <laughs> you don't need to go to bed at midnight okay okay uh swap no your second draft pick no your third draft pick your ultimate draft pick 
Oh, we are doing a full uh, third round as well. We're doing a full third round. We're trying to, we're trying to blast through this third round. So okay, I'm I'll... really hoping that you're going to vote for the chlorothaladone trial because I just think this fits you. You just... That's your argument. I, I thought. Look at her lobby. Screw She's lobbying diet. for you to draft. Screw diet. Sophie, you've had your you've had Side your draft sides. pick. You've had your draft pick. You're not, you can't trade down. <laughs> no, I'm drafting for swap. I, I thought uh, Joel would do that, but he did not. So I. I have a draft pick left. I've got a draft pick left. I will not let this session close without us talking about Click. Okay. So if you don't pick it, I, I got your ba- I got a backstop. Okay. Okay. I'll let you pick it. I'm thinking what I should. Uh, why Why don't I pick the Hiv just for the Heck of it, uh, and they the were kind HIF of trial. the HIF trial, the new one, right? The S and uh, D and S and N D, and I'm I know we have been through HIF for a, a while. We had we discussed the Rockstar uh, a year ago, uh, the debacle with the Rockstar do stats. Uh, I think I think we know now that the HIF and HIF stabilizers or HIF PHI inhibitors they increase hemoglobin. They are pretty efficacious at that. But when yep. it comes to cardiovascular safety, they are no longer superior. Right? No one is talking about superiority. What happened three years ago at ASN was that, or was it two years ago uh, at ASN? 2019. Uh, 2019. 2019. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bob Provenzano sh- showed data that maybe they're superior, right? So that's all gone out of the window. No, there was no maybe. It yeah. was they were superior. Full stop. It exactly. was am- it was amazing data. Exactly. That was in di- in di- in uh, dialysis. Nuance in dialysis, dialysis. Exactly. In incident yeah. dialysis. So that's all gone, right? It's completely gone. No one is talking about that. We are only talking about non-inferior, and they do seem to be non-inferior. Uh, they're definitely not superior, but depending on how you slice and dice it, maybe they're inferior. Uh, you know, as we saw with Vadadu stat, uh, and and the margins are like, is it two seven, two five? What do you pick? What is the upper margin? Uh, those things, I think, is where uh, the discussion is going to be. Uh, Dapro do stat though was comfortably non-inferior. The the ninety five percent confidence intervals were all below one point two five. So you know, it was a win for that molecule. Uh, but I think they are if if the people making Dapro are dancing, I would say no. The the analysis that uh, uh, Daniel Coyne showed us is that FDA has done their own thing, right? I think what happened with Roxa is made them into, you know, they didn't trust anything. So FDA always does their own analysis. And they did all these kind of, you know, drug plus this and this and that. They did a bunch of fancy analysis. And in a bunch of them, in some of them, it is inferior. And I think the same thing will happen with Dapro. So uh, I am not sure where things are going, which is kind of sad because I think these molecules are just one more choice. They're no longer blockbuster drugs, but it's kind of an oral version. So maybe it will be convenient for some patients and some settings, you know, PD patients or pre-dialysis patients or what have you. Uh, They are definitely not better. There is no question of them being better in any way. Uh, It is still going on. Uh, It it was very interesting data. No blockbuster, but uh, I think the story is slowly moving forward in some indeterminate way. It'll it'll be interesting to see if they can get through the FDA. That'll be interesting. Okay, Nayan, give us your third pick, third and ultimate pick. Okay. I'm going to go with uh, CKD and heart failure, the cardiorenal connection. This was a session? This was a session. Some of you guys know that I'm a big fan of hypertonic saline for patients with congestive heart failure and particularly decompensated heart failure. And when I tweet about this, nobody cares. I care. Well, thanks, Joel. But that, that's under. It's <laughs> yeah, because it's, the, it's those Italian trials who don't, you know. They... Well, there's more than the Italian trials. There's yeah. the Japanese trial. That's just. I'll, we'll talk after. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. So, wow, no. Unbelievable. The, the point of this is, the reason I'm picking that is 
Rick Stearns talked about hypertonic saline. So when he says it, it's a big deal. And so he talked about it in the context of uh, heart failure with hyponatremia, but also mentioned the data regarding potential improvement in diuretic resistance, potential improvement in hard outcomes. And so I thought that was a big deal that it made it to ASN. And somebody like Rick Stearns is highlighting hypertonic saline as an adjunctive therapy for decompensated heart failure. Excellent. Excellent. Did he, and how did he do patient selection? Did he care about the chloride? I'm super curious if he even mentioned the chloride. So I've emailed him. He didn't mention it. Uh, I'm <laughs> assuming that that got cut out because of time. <laughs> I'm sure that's what it was. <laughs> so I can't, I can't remember. Um, so I, I watched this one too, but he also was highlighting our V2, V1 receptor antagonist. Yeah. So there's a new. And how. Yeah, there's Go a ahead. new agent called Percovaptan. So that's it's it's I think similar to Conovaptan as it's Yeah, Conovaptan with a V1 and V2 right. antagonist. So the advantage right. of this one it's oral. It's an oral <laughs> uh, uh, antagonist. Um I think the data is still we're, we're still waiting to see whether V1 antagonism actually makes a difference in heart failure. Outside of mice. That's the point. Outside of Outside mice of and mice. and I believe cats. I think, I think cats. You don't usually hear cats as an experimental model. Right. I like to. I like it. <laughs> Diversity. Like it. Yeah. Okay, Jenny, your last pick. Okay. Well, for the reasons that you guys um, were frustrated with virtual meetings, um, for me, it was like I ended up having difficulty logging in to stream some of these sessions after the fact. So I have not seen as many sessions as you guys have, but so I'm going to put up actually a Sue Quaggan's presidential address. I nice. had alluded to it before, but think about it. She really did have quite a task to summarize everything that's been going on in the kidney world in the past year or so. Like everything with closins, all the different trials, all these New England journal papers, you know, the each And her framing was... Yeah. Her framing was interesting, right? Yeah. She did the big, she, it was a big switcheroo. You mean like COVID not being the big, big healthcare crisis and kidney right? Because yeah. the way she started it, she, you thought she was talking about COVID, and then she's like, "I'm not talking about COVID." Yeah. And you're like, yeah. no way! Yeah, <laughs> and she kept saying "frozen, frozen, frozen aid," right? That yeah. was like, whoa, yeah. yes. And hence, who was it that came up with that term? By the way, anybody want to take credit for it right here? Oh, Swap those raising in his hand. <laughs> Do we need something for our glutides and for our uh, non-steroidal anti? Sorry, I'm stealing. I'm stealing your thunder. Go ahead. But in any case, main takeaway was that it was very inspirational, and I know that presidential addresses are supposed, but I felt like this one in particular really was, and it really encapsulated the spirit of how nephrology is changing, how it's so dynamic. You know, we're having race-free EGFR equations in the U.S. for the first time, and really highlighting how nephrology is kind of a pioneering specialty right now. And uh, she said, no longer will kidney failure define kidney medicine. And I really thought that was a very eloquent way of saying, hey, we're going to try to put dialysis out of business, right? Like, we don't want to get to failure. We want this to be kidney medicine, kidney health. So, So I thought that was very inspiring for sure and a great way to open Outstanding. And I will say for a whole four day kidney week where everybody was looking in front of their webcams, the production value of her presidential address was great. She was just not in front of her computer. She was at a podium. She definitely, it was a different, different technology for recording it. And she looked 
awesome and sounded great, like really good production quality. I think more people should do it like she does. It was awesome. For sure. And you know, the other person who had really good production quality was, um, was, oh, it's my pick. My last, the, the pen, the ultimate pick of the first annual Kidney Week draft is the Click Trial. <laughs> so this was, uh, this was Rajiv Agarwal and he, had a completely different way of doing his slides where he was actually like in front of the sw- slides, like the weatherman doing it. <laughs> it was very cool. It looked great. Oh, yeah, yeah, And yeah. Uh, And his try – and th- so this is – we saw pilot data years ago of using chlorthalidone in stages uh, 4 and 5 CKD. And I think their average GFR was in the low 20s. I think it was like 23 for this trial with the endpoint looking at blood pressure. And they did ambulatory blood pressure as their endpoint. And it worked, right? So this myth that you can't use thiazides once the GFR falls below 30 is just blown out of the water as long as you're, and he actually had, and so the primary outcome was blood pressure and it lowered uh, ambulatory blood pressure and it lowered office blood pressure, like it worked across the board. So chlorthalidone all the way to dialysis, right? The stuff works. It's great for blood pressure, uh, excellent production value. And I think this this was uh, simultaneously published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I think we will cover this in December in um, NEFJC. Does that sound right to you guys? Yeah, this doesn't work. It's like 10 millimeters, right? It's a huge... Yeah, it's a big, yeah, it's a big effect it's a size. big, big effect size, yeah. And, yeah. and, and he did the same uh, for production values. He did the same with Fidelio last year. So everyone was asking him on Twitter, how did you do it? How did you do it? So he, he put up a video and uh, he apparently uses uh, Adobe Premium. Uh, it's a pain. It was uh, expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's expensive, but it's also painful. Like he has to, you know, know what he's talking about, but because he doesn't know what is he's got talking about or something. And there's a low pressure zone in here. <laughs> and there's a storm coming here in Albuquerque. Yeah, no, yeah. I get it. Yeah, it was very professional. It looked very, very pro. It looked good. It looked yeah. good. Okay. Do we want to do a uh, what do they call them tubular secretions? Sure. Okay. The, the only okay. I'm, I am going to put in one, and if anybody else comes up with one, they can definitely add it. I'm not going to not taking privilege here. Vote for the NFJC kidneys. I can't tell you what's nominated. We haven't figured that out yet. But by the time this comes out, the nominations are out. Only people that have signed up for the newsletter are able to vote. We'll send a separate email to that list that will allow you to click and vote. And so, and so, this is your opportunity to pick the most important events of uh, in social media and nephrology in the last year. And we got uh, – what do we have? We have a, a manuscript of the year. We have engaged scientists of the year. MVP, I don't think we let other people vote. That's just NFJC that gets to vote on that one. Same thing with Rookie of the Year is just NFJC. And, oh, and then the Nathan Hellman social media, um, social media project of the year, uh, mm-hmm. which has a lot of good things. We saw Nef, uh, the Nef Sims Nephrons was uh, – Samira was talking about. And then also the Glomcon the, um, Fellowship. The Glomcon Fellowship were very, very cool. They completed their first year. They were nominated. And I think uh, the eight. 50 challenges. I mean, we had a lot of really cool social media uh, projects. One of those should would be great. And then the others, uh, Visual Abstract of the Year gets to be voted on. And then the last one is the Social Justice Award also gets to be voted on. So a lot of cool things to vote on. Uh, make sure you put that vote in. Anybody else have a free, uh, tubular secretion? No, that Excellent. was good.